Good morning, church. It's been about, yeah, exactly two weeks since I've been here. I've missed you all. It's good to see you all again. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were with my father-in-law and my mother-in-law at their church, um, and then last week I was all ready to preach, and then I got sick, and so uh, we are part of an Acts 29 a church planting network, and so we help each other out every now and then, and so we were able to call somebody to come in and, and, and help us out, and uh, so it's been uh, very busy, including uh, us getting ready to, to move and and uh, it's just been a whirlwind. So um, I, I might end up just kind of making up the sermon on the fly. I have no idea what I'm going to say this morning. No, I've got a few notes here. We'll see how it goes. All right? If you're new here, we're going through um, the book of Philippians. And we are here in chapter 4. We only looked at the first three verses. And what we see in these three verses right here, I think, is a good case study when it comes to unity in God's community. And what we see is a, is a case study of, of Paul diffusing disharmony in the church. And what, what Paul is, is showing us and encouraging us to do is, is how to make and maintain peace in relationships. Now, you know, you don't have to be a pastor to know that most people, most people alive today have strained relationships. At least one strained relationships and often more than one strained relationship, Right? Uh, strained relationship, you know, maybe you've been friends for a long time and you had a falling out. Strained relationship with a coworker, or or maybe your spouse or your parents or your children or your neighbors, and it just kind of messes up your life, doesn't it? Now, specifically this morning, when it comes to this passage, we are going to be looking at relationships within the church. This is something Paul hits on over and over and over again in his epistles. And so it comes up in our preaching over and over and over again. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are expected to have a genuine unity. So, as you think about a brother or sister in Christ, whether it be in this church or some other church, somebody else who claims to, to know and love Jesus and follow Jesus, is there anybody that comes to mind um, where the relationship is strained, where, where you guys are just butting heads or you're just, it's just, it's, you're just cold and, and distance? Any, anybody come to mind? I, I want you to keep that person in mind as we go through this. And I want you to be praying uh, that the Holy Spirit um, would stir within you uh, a, a love for that person. I know that sounds weird, because uh, whatever it is that you're going through may be extremely painful. But pray for that as we work through this. And as we go through this, um, actively listen by applying what, uh, what we're talking about here this morning. So, that person who comes to mind, hold them um, in your mind throughout the sermon. <sighs> Over the years, uh, being a pastor or even just being a member of different churches, what I have seen is incredible damage done to the church and the church's message because of disharmony. Disharmony is like the church's suicide bomb. It just blows everything up. We destroy ourselves 
with disharmony. And, and I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but when I find myself in disharmony with someone else, it is so easy, it is so tempting to view myself as the one who is righteous and the other person the one who is unrighteous. And it's so tempting to blame the other person for the disharmony, right? Am I alone in this? It happens so easily. And you know what? That is satanic manipulation. There is nothing that, that Satan wants more than to have disunity in the church. For us to be consumed with our own wants, our own desires, our own priorities at the expense of someone else's. At the expense of, of unity. So we need to know how to disarm this bomb, this, this destructive disharmony, if we are going to see real unity in the church. And if we're going to see real unity in the church, um, we can't just go through some you know, tips and tricks on how to have unity. We've got to look at the big picture, the main picture of the scriptures. We need to ask ourselves, what does God want for us to be as a church, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done and the ministry of reconciliation, what does God expect from the church? Now, here's the deal. The church is supposed to be kind of a, a, a preview, like a, like a movie preview. God wants us to live in such a way that it's a preview of what the kingdom of God in its fullness might look like. And, and, and central to that is how we relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So think of somebody that you butt heads with. Think of someone you strongly disagree with. My question for you, as you examine your own heart and life, is how do you handle it? How do you handle it? With love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Not me. Maybe you all do, but not me. It's, it's, it's a struggle. What kind of preview to the kingdom of God are you showing? And how important do you think that this is to God? I'll show you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he prayed for his church. He specifically prayed for unity within the church, that we would experience the kind of love that Christ and his Father experienced. That's what he was praying for. Why? Well, he says, so that the world might know that the gospel message is true. That's critical, right? That's what Jesus was praying for as he faced the cross. So unity and harmony and loving relationships are that important to Jesus. And they should be that important to us. Now, so much, if we're just going to be honest, I'm not trying to bag on the church or anything like that. I think it's a, a loving thing to do, to do an honest assessment of how the church is, is doing. Most of the time, as a church at large, churches everywhere, we fail so miserably in this. There's disharmony and bitterness, and grudges, and gossip, and lack of loyalty. I mean, and, and it all destroys the message of the gospel. It undermines the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. It, um, the, the hope for the world gets lost in the middle of that mess. And non-Christians look at the preview of coming attractions and say, they say, I, you know what? I think I'm going to skip that one. I mean, I could get all that anywhere else I go. 
why join the church? Now, we can't go back and fix church history, but we can and we must cultivate healthy relationships within our church. It's critical for us. And so how can we do that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. If you're taking notes, here's the, 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 we'll start with this. With what is involved in diffusing this destructive bomb of disharmony, Paul shows us three things. First of all, simply loving one another, right? Now, that seems like a no-brainer, right? But it's critical. Listen to verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, what is the first word in this uh, sentence right here? It's therefore. And that means that this is a transitional verse, right? That means that uh, 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 there's a bridge between what he just said and what he is about to say. He was just talking about how awesome Christ is and how amazing his grace is, and now he's shifting gears. He's saying, you know what? Christ is glorious. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. Now, did you notice what he does here? He piles up six expressions of affection on top of each other. My brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. Now, why does he do that? Well, he does that because he's about to correct them. And he wants to make sure. Well, what happened? Did we get ahead of ourselves in the slides? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Moving on. <laughs> He's about to correct them. He wants to make sure his motives his, and attitudes aren't misunderstood, so he reminds them of the love that he has for them so that they can receive what he's going to say. Now, I think that this would help us a lot in our own conflicts, reminding each other of the love that we have for the people we're in conflict with. You know what that means? That means that conflict resolution is not so much a technique like steps that we apply that can be helpful, but it's so much more than that. It's about a profound, genuine love for people, right? As a church, we got to get this because community does not mean, community does not mean that our loyalty to each other will not be tested. Our loyalty to each other will be tested. But true community means that we survive those tests together, right? We survive the tough stuff together. This is the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is talking about. So the first thing involved in diffusing disharmony um, is, is loving one another. Second, it's agreeing with one another. If you look at verse 2, it says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Okay, two questions. First of all, what in the world does entreat mean? I beg you. I plead with you. More on that in a second. But first, who in the world are Euodia and Syntyche? Right? Not the most popular names in the baby name book, right? 
And there might be a couple of reasons for that, but one is because we don't really know much about them. The commentators have kind of pieced together maybe a, a few things, and, and, and they suggest, um, first of all, that, that they're mature. I mean, it's unusual it's unusual for, for Paul in his, in his letters to call people out in front of the church, right? That, that's like me saying on a Sunday morning in front of all of you, all right, this next point is specifically for Jason Vanderwerker and Evan. <laughs> now listen up, <laughs> right? The fact that Paul does this shows the seriousness of the problem. But I think it also points to the fact that these women are mature enough to be able to handle public correction. And then not only are they mature, commentators suggest that they're leaders. I mean, the conflict is probably not just some bickering between a couple of crabby people, right? Apparently, there's major division within the leadership of the church. Maybe they were deaconesses or something. We're not sure. But we cannot minimize the description that Paul uses for these two women when he calls them fellow workers who shared in the apostolic struggle. So they're mature, they're leaders, and also it's suggested, it's pretty clear, that they're at odds, right? Now, we don't know what they're arguing about. No idea. But guess what? That's not the point, right? Their preview was ruining the coming attraction. Paul says, I plead with you to agree with one another. Now, how in the world do you agree with someone when you disagree? Do you just agree to disagree? Well, Paul says that won't cut it this time. And Paul doesn't give them a step-by-step process here, but he does give them a starting point. He says, agree with each other in the Lord. That's the starting point. He's reminding them of how much they do have in common and how important what they have in common is. They have the same Lord. They agree on the central message of the Bible, the gospel. Beyond that, other areas of disagreement are minor. I mean, if, if, if the Lord is important enough to us, if the gospel is important enough to us, then we will see other disagreements as minor in comparison. And he says, focus. You guys have a disagreement? Focus on your unity in Christ. Start there. Now listen, we are committed to being a church that focuses on gospel unity. And let me tell you something. It will be tested. All right? We can't be in denial or be naive about that. It will be tested. It does get tested. It's been tested in the past. It's been tested in the present. It will be tested in the future. Which is why we need to be committed to being a church of focus on gospel unity. See, we're not defined by who we're against and what we don't like. We want to focus on, on, on the issues that, that really count, like who is Jesus and what has he done and what is he doing, right? That is what shapes us into a church that's determined to remain united as we work together to take the gospel and the love of Christ into our neighborhoods and beyond because we can agree on the Lord. And then third, diffusing disharmony involves 
helping one another. In verse 3, Paul says this. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, when he says true companion right here, who's he talking about? Well, there's a lot of speculation, but most reasonable interpretation that we've come across is that it's Paul's way of inviting various members of the church to, to prove themselves as loyal partners in the work of the gospel by helping these women reconcile, by taking up the ministry of reconciliation. See, disagreement between two Christians is not just a personal issue between those two people. It's not. We have the responsibility to help each other preserve and promote unity. Again, no, no steps here. People get hung up on the steps all the time. But that doesn't matter at all if, 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 we're, if we don't have a genuine love for, for God and for each other and, and committed to gospel community. I mean, God has called all of us, if you are a Christian, he has called you to the ministry of reconciliation. If you are a Christian, God has called you to be involved in the redemptive process. To be agents. If you're a Christian, you are an agent of reconciliation. Otherwise, you know what? It's just too easy for people who have a falling out or don't like something or, or when they experience tension to say, you know what? I think God is calling me to break off fellowship. It happens all the time. Now, none of this stuff is easy, is it? Now, we got to go a little bit deeper with a, a tough question. And, and this is our second main point. And the, and the question is, why don't we do this? Why don't we diffuse uh, disharmony? If, if we're going to diffuse the disharmony, we got to get to the fuse, right? What causes disharmony? Why is, why is it all of this so difficult? Here's the short answer. The short answer is because our over-desires battle within us. We talk about this a lot. We'll look at James 4, and uh, I'll explain what I mean, okay? Look at James 4 on the screen. James says, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? And he's going to answer his own question, right? Don't, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and cover, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. It's all about you and what you want. And when, when James writes in verse 2, you want something, he uses a word that means over-desire. So James is saying, at the root of our bitterness, the root of our anger, the root of our criticism, the root of our envy, the root of our neglect of peacemaking is our over-desires. All right? So what are over-desires? They are good things that we want in a bad way. Okay? Good things that we want in a bad way way. That's why we justify them so easily, right? They're good things. 
But we get to the point that they are an over-desire because we can't be happy without them. It might be the desire for respect. It might be the desire of approval from people. It, it, it might be the desire to have people, you know, agree with you. All good things, right? There's nothing wrong necessarily in and of uh, them, themselves. The problem is when they become an over-desire. When they become so intense, we say, I have to have this to be happy. I have to have this to be at peace. And James is saying, that is what lights the fuse of disharmony. That I have to have this to be happy. And we never consider our own hearts. We always only first consider that it's the other person's fault. We never consider our own over-desires. Now, the question, and the question is, how do we identify these over-desires? Because it can be kind of tricky, real tricky. I mean, we, we don't even see what's going on. We are so blinded. So how do we see it? Well, I don't know if this will help or not, but we'll give it a try. What is common with all six of these pictures? Is there, is there a common theme in all that? Yeah. Each one of them is a warning sign that something is very wrong, right? Something is very wrong. You see the bat signal, you know something is wrong. When you see Homer Simpson worried, you know that something's wrong. These are all warning signs that something's not right, that something is messed up, something is not as it should be. And you know what? Let me tell you something. These, we don't miss them. You know what? We see somebody, like, like it gets our attention, right? We don't, we don't ignore it. What would happen if we ignored it? They die, Right? We ignore our warning signs all the time, all the time. God has given us warning signs that something is very wrong in our heart, and we ignore it. So let me point out the warning signs to you, the, the warning signs that, that, that God wants us to use as like a major red flag to examine our own hearts are things like bitterness, being so hurt, you are crushed and it destroys you. Impatience, worry, hopelessness. These signs, these are signs that reveal that we have an over-desire. And we ignore them. We can't ignore them. Next time you, see, you feel bitterness creeping in. Next time you, you feel frustration, which is code for impatience, creeping in, or worry creeping in, remember that they are warning signs. Don't ignore them. If you ignore them, it just ruins everything. If we have an over-desire for respect, if we have an over-desire for, for approval, if we have an over-desire for appreciation... We'll get bitter if we feel like somebody slighted us. It's a warning sign. If we have an over-desire for well-behaved kids, we will overreact in anger when they misbehave. That's a warning sign. 
If we have an over-desire for comfort, we'll get frustrated when somebody messes that up for us. That is a warning sign. Let me ask you, any warning signs in your life this morning? A few, maybe? Don't ignore them, okay? They're there for a very important reason. And don't justify it. That would be a misuse of those warning signs. Now let me tell you about these over-desires, okay? That we cling to and fight for and grasp and hold on to with all our might. Let me tell you about these over-desires that we cherish so much and sacrifice so much for. First of all, they're weak. They're weak. When we succeed, they raise the bar. When we fail, they leave us in guilt and shame. That's what it does. If we have an over-desire for success in ministry, good thing, right? If we have an over-desire for success in school, if we have an over-desire for success in our business or work, if we have an over-desire for uh, successfully making friends, what happens when we reach our goal? We're happy for like two and a half minutes and then we set a higher goal, right? They can't satisfy. And if we fail to reach our goal, they can only condemn us. They're weak. Why do we cherish it so much? Secondly, our over-desires are harmful. They not only hurt us spiritually, they not only hurt us emotionally, they not only hurt us even physically, they, they hurt others by undermining our ability to love them. So, nothing's wrong with security, people. I mean, financial security can be a good thing. You know, physical security, uh, being safe, that can be a good, a good thing. But if we have an over-desire for security, it will hurt us. If, we, if when our rent goes up, our joy goes down, right? Y'all been there? When our income decreases, our anxiety increases. Then when we can't sleep at night, we don't want to be awake during the day. And you know what? It hurts others. And the way it hurts others is if we're wrapped up in our, in our, like, you know, our, our concern for our, our own security of one kind or another, then all of a sudden we become less and less generous. And we bless others less and less. And we become less concerned about them and more concerned about our, ourself. And we justify it. You know? or, or we see somebody else, that they're doing well financially. They're, they're doing well. They're, they're, they're very secure. It seems like they have their life together. And then all of a sudden, envy kind of gets stirred up in our heart. And then, and then we're not loving them anymore because we're envious of them. I mean, this sneaks up on us. And the last thing I'll say about this is that, that they are grievous, okay? When we make any good thing, the ultimate thing that we have to have to be happy, you know what it is that we're saying to God? When we have a good thing, that, it could be a wonderful thing. But we say, whether consciously or subconsciously, the state of our heart will reveal it. When there is something that we have to have to be happy, you know what we're saying to God? I'm sorry, but Jesus is just not enough. I also have to have this. 
it's grievous. It's not that that thing isn't a good thing. It could be very well a good thing. But so often we look to those things to get our comfort, those things to get our security, and we spend most of our time preoccupied with trying to get that or figuring out how to get that or being bitter about the fact that we don't have that, and our eyes are completely taken off how good God is and the blessings we already have in him, in Christ. Our over-desires battle within us and just tear us apart. Any Tolkien fans in here? Right? Maybe you've seen Lord of the Rings. Right? What did Gollum call the ring? That's right. There's always one person in here that does the voice. Right? It's awesome. And, and if you saw the movie, we watched him go nuts, right? Fighting his over-desires until it ultimately destroys him. That's what happens to us. That's what happens to our relationship. That's what happens to, to unity within the church. It gets completely destroyed by our over-desires. It seems hopeless and leads to disharmony. So, that begs the question, right, our, our last question. How can we diffuse disharmony? Well, if, if you leave here just thinking, fine, you know what, I'll just try harder to change. I'm telling you, it won't work. It might work for a second, but it's short-lived. It's no real lasting change. So, how can we diffuse disharmony? Well, we got to diffuse our over-desires. And how do we do that? Here's the short answer. Only by the expulsive power of a greater desire. It's one of my favorite quotes I'll read. I've read to you multiple times. I'll, I'll read it to you again because I think it's good. Um, the question first, though, is what does expulsive mean? It means to eject something, to, to bump something out, Right? So here's the quote. I think it helps us to understand the way we change and grow as, as Christians. It's from an essay by Thomas Chalmers uh, written in the early 1800s. Um, the, uh, the, the essay is titled The Expulsive Power of a Greater Affection. Now, now try to hang in there. There may be some antiquated language in here, but, but try to follow along with me as I, as I read this, okay? He says, It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws or sin disappear by a mere process of natural extinction, reasoning, or by the force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, he says. And one desire may be made uh, to give way to another. Now, are you following this? He's saying that we can't destroy an over-desire, but it can be replaced, all right? And he gives examples. He says, you know, it is true that the youth ceases to idolize sensual pleasure, but it is because the idol or over-desire of wealth has taken over. Even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart because it is drawn into the world of ideology and politics. And he is now... Uh, lorded over by a love of power and moral superiority. But there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object it desires. Its desire for one particular object is conquered 
but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. He says the heart will always have an object of desire. But the question is, is it worthy of our lives, right? Now, I'm going to put the last part on on the screen here so you you can uh, uh, follow along. I want you to get this. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old desire is by the expulsive power of a new one. It is only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us. It is then that the heart, brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection or desire, is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and the only way that deliverance is possible. And what is the one great desire that can expel all other over-desires? Chalmers says it is grateful love for Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus, when we see his love, when we trust in him, our hearts are filled with a new affection that drives out our over-desires. The warning signs go off, and if, if we are sons and daughters of, of our heavenly Father, those warning signs will drive us to Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we will say, along with Paul, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How do we get that desire? Well, Paul points us to the answer, and he says, uh, these women have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And he adds that deliberately. He gives them perspective by deliberately reminding them of the gospel because it is the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done that stirs up that desire. It is the great story of King Jesus, the great story that all other great stories point to. Why is there disharmony in the world? Why are there school shootings? Why are men and women and kids you know, living in the, in the streets and eating out of dumpsters? Why, why do we look down on people? Why do we turn our backs on each other and bail when things get difficult? Why do our over-desires battle within us? It's because the wrong king is on the throne of people's hearts. And when the wrong king is on the throne, all hell breaks loose. But the gospel story is this. Our king shows up and does battle with darkness. When our king shows up, we see him heal the sick and cast out demons and calm the storm, you see, and raise the dead. Our king is diffusing disharmony in the world. But as you read the gospels and watch the story play out, what do we see? They arrest our king. They beat him. And they spit on him. What in the world is going on? You want to like shout at the pages and tell Jesus you know, to do something. But he chooses to be weak. And our king dies. So wait, he, he was supposed to be the one, but, but he's crucified? And he dies and he's buried. And three days later, his body's gone. 
And Mary asks, where is he? Where is my Lord? And then she hears his voice. It's me. And she realizes in that second that Jesus is alive. My Lord and my God, she says. It was through defeat that Jesus triumphs. It was through death that, that, that he defeats death. And he says to us, look, I want you to tell the world that I am alive, that the king rules with all authority in heaven and on earth, and I will be with you always until the end of the age. And he ascends to his rightful throne in majesty. And then he takes a bride. And who is the bride? It's the church. Those who have trusted in him. He brought unfaithful people like me into this great story to be with him. I mean, that blows my mind. And now our names are written in the book of life. Listen, sometimes in life, we worry that we're missing out. Well, let me tell you something. We are missing out, and we don't even know the half of it, all right? But if we know Jesus, ultimately, we're not going to miss out on anything. And one day, he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, and one day we will be like him. And this is the promise that he fulfills for his people. We will enter his presence, and guess what? We will know fully that we don't need anything else. All of life's heartaches and broken dreams will vanish, and our greatest desire will be fulfilled in Christ. And we will enter into all eternity with the joy of being with King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever. This is the gospel. This is uh, what stirs up the expulsive power of a greater affection that frees you to love some people who may seem really unlovable. There is a king who will make everything wrong right, who conquers sin, death, and destruction, who loves us enough to live for us and die for us. And his name is Jesus Christ, and he makes living happily ever after all reality. This is the expulsive power of a greater affection. And we respond, we respond by loving one another through thick and thin. Agreeing with one another in the Lord in spite of our differences. And helping each other as brothers and sisters in Christ diffuse disharmony. This is the power of the gospel. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your truth, your objective truth. And, and we thank you that it, that it doesn't become any less true um, when our faith is weak. The way we feel about it doesn't dictate what's true or not true. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the truth that the gospel is the power of God. 
that the gospel changes everything. That is the gospel that changes our hearts. It is the gospel that brings reconciliation between us and you. It brings reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I want to pray uh, for those, especially for those here who find themselves in, um, in a broken relationship with another Christian. God, I pray uh, that you would bring healing to that. And God, I pray that you would um, bless us with patience, knowing that it, things don't necessarily get fixed right away. Sometimes it can take a very long time. And God, I also pray for a sense of peace, knowing that as much as we try to love the other person, they may not you know, love us back or, or want to receive it. And God, I want to pray for those who are in uh, possibly an abusive relationship. Where the person is is verbally abusive or physically uh, uh, abusive, emotionally abusive, spiritually abusive. Um, God, I pray um, that you would enable us to find our peace in you, knowing that you are in control and that you give us love for that person even though the love is not returned. God, I, I, I pray that you would give, um, give us wisdom. Show us what uh, boundaries based on the gospel look like if those are necessary. And God, may we reach out to our brothers and sisters for help, for prayer, for encouragement, and then while we're seeking help, guard our hearts against gossip. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, enable us to fight disunity with the grace of Jesus. Give us the courage for that, the faith to be agents of reconciliation. And God, I pray, Lord, if there is somebody here who has not yet been reconciled to you through faith in Jesus to be the forgiver of their sin and the Lord of their lives, that this morning you would give them that gift of faith to look to you, to trust you, to see that you love them so much you sent your son to to live for them and die for them, and that it's the only thing that can save them. God, we pray that they would come to faith in Christ this morning. For the rest of us, God, I pray that, that your Holy Spirit would show us the sin in our hearts, graciously show us the sin in our hearts. How we ignore the, the warning signs of bitterness and anger and, and discontent and justify it. Help us to pay attention to those warning signs and may they drive us to Jesus to fill our hearts with the grace and love and peace of Jesus. We pray these things in your name.